close your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to the Ghost Story Guys. Welcome to the Ghost Story Guys. I'm Brennan Storr. I'm Paul Bestel. And this is a show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 133, and we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about, but can never quite reach. How are you, Paul? I'm okay. It's been a hell of a week. Yes, you, you've had <laughs> crazy weather, crazy yes. people, and a, a, well, a surprise peek into a world you did not expect. <laughs> yes, I don't expect to get flashed in the establishments in my locality, but there well, we are. You should stop letting me in. <laughs> the things you see at half past eight on a Saturday night in Sheffield. That was half past eight that it happened. Oh yeah, it was fairly early. Oh wow. I guess we can all get together, so we're going to celebrate and some folks are going to do that in strange ways. Yeah, yeah. Bit of sunshine, the country goes mental. <laughs> <laughs> That's the same way here on the coast. In Victoria, <laughs> if, the weather, if the weather changes too dramatically, everyone just kind of loses their mind. They start sacrificing kids at the Terry Fox statue at mile zero. It's mm. very scary. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If, if they just you know decided to forego underwear, I think everyone would be a lot happier. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, that was the, uh, the start to a crazy few days here in, in Sheffield. <laughs> well, nothing so interesting here. Although <laughs> I had a really great interview for Largely the Truth. And usually I don't talk about Largely the Truth too much here because it's not a, really a paranormal show. But I ended up interviewing two Canadian horror authors. And Man, it was the coolest thing because these guys are also very interested in the paranormal and the topics of their fiction books are informed by their legitimate research into the paranormal. So one of them, Steve Stred, who writes, uh, I would say extreme horror um, in folks, I, you know, Steve's a good writer, but it, depending on how well you can handle extreme violence, I would say approach Steve's stuff with caution. Again, it's good, but it, it's intense, but he actually joined a cult online in order to research this thing. And he talks about it on the episode and I encourage you to check it out. It's out now, but just to give you a brief rundown, I mean, this is a cult that was started by the lead singer of a Swedish metal band called Dissection. And these guys are nuts. <laughs> Some of the stuff that uh, he describes in the afterward to the book he researched doing this is it, it's actually vile. Like I, I'm not going to get into it, but it was, it was just an education in what is out there in the world. Harry stuff. And I mentioned this to you and you reminded me that it is a, there is a certain anniversary which mm -hmm. just passed. So this, all this seems very apropos. Yes. Yes. The, uh, anniversary of the heaven's gate tragedy, which is one of those things that I've, I've, I have a weird thing with cults because I just can't get my head around it. Um, and heaven's gate, especially because they were part of the UFO circuit as of well course. took the decision to uh, commit suicide to ascend to the ufo that was allegedly hiding in the tail of the halbot comet and so coincidentally this group also their thing is you ascend mm. except to them you're ascending to a place i believe they call the black heaven mm. but the lead singer of this uh of dissection he did the same thing he he ended his own life and is said to by other members, or at least at the time, Steve was saying that uh, no, he 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 completed the steps and he ascended. 
Mm. And so if you guys are at all interested in that kind of thing, uh, check out that episode. And, and actually, before, before I move on from that, you and I were talking about this briefly. The other author I interviewed on that show was Andrew Piper, and mm. he's another Canadian horror novelist who his most recent uh, paperback, The Residence, is about a, a little known series of events in the White House during the Pierce presidency. And during the course of that research, he uncovered a number of other incidents in the White House where paranormal activity was a recorded in official documentation. And he was saying that there was even a case where fairly recently, and I don't know how publicly known this is, it might be, I'm, I'm not that well informed, but a secret service agent was so unnerved by something that happened in the basement, he actually discharged his weapon, mm. but it was all kept very, very quiet. And so it's fascinating to me that again, these stories are out there, but it's just a matter of asking the right questions at the right time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the White House has a long history, especially since the Lincoln assassination, because Lincoln's one of the most famous ghosts that's allegedly spotted. Several world famous people and notable historical figures have bumped into Lincoln's ghost, including famously Churchill after he got out of the bath and was sat naked <laughs> in a chair having a cigar, suddenly realized that Abraham Lincoln's spirit had turned up and said, Mr. President, do you seem to have me at a disadvantage? Well, one, I'd love the English reserve of that. <laughs> and also that's a horrifying image of yes. Churchill nude smoking a cigar. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lincoln was, was seen twice in the 19, in, during the second world war, once by Churchill and once by uh, Queen uh, Wilhelmina of the Netherlands. And she was really? just, he, she, he was banging on the door ferociously, apparently, uh, which disturbed her greatly. And she opened the door and he was stood there and she fainted and was found wow. by her staff uh, several minutes later, still unconscious on the floor. That's incredible. Mm. The only thing I know, know about Lincoln as far as that goes is the infamous story of him dreaming, allegedly, mm -hmm. prior to his assassination about wandering through the White House as it was in mourning. Mm. And he asks someone who is dead and they tell him the president, he's been shot. Mm. And I, I think it was in Doris Kearns Goodwin's Team of Rivals, I read mm. that. And it was fascinating because in the- um, in that book, you know, they start to challenge the timeline of when mm. that dream may have happened. Mm. And w there's a patron only bit for that show. So if you, you know, if you're a patron of Largely the Truth, or actually if you're a patron of Ghost Story Guys, you'll also hear it. There's a bit where we talk about how that sort of seems to be almost, and you and I've talked about this on the show, that's almost like a thing a lot of people, a lot of skeptics especially will do after they've had an experience like that. Mm. They will start shifting the timeline around to invalidate it. Yeah. So they'll say, oh, no, no, that didn't, that couldn't have happened when he went prior to the actual event. I'm, no, it happened afterwards, hmm. even though they know damn well, that's not the case. It's just in order to make it fit their worldview, they have to adjust the timeline. Mary Todd Lincoln, who's obviously was Lincoln's widow, became obsessed with spiritualism after his assassination as well. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. They used to have seances in the White House. She was desperate to try and connect with him. So apparently that was also the case. <laughs> Jesus, we got to get the show going here, but this is a great conversation, <laughs> but that was, that was also the case with, uh, president Franklin Pierce, his mm. 11 year old son died. Uh, I want to say days before they took residence in the white house mm. and his wife who never wanted him to be president in the first place, she held a number of seances trying to contact their son. Mm. And so, uh, yeah, it, it, anyways, great conversation. That's the latest episode of large of the truth with Steve Stred and Andrew Piper. And again, if you're a patron of ghost story guys, you will get a version, uh, an episode of sunken library mm. that has the entire conversation. So with the extra 30 minutes uh, of paranormal stuff added in, 
I mean, the, the main episode's paranormal enough, but there's extra stuff which uh, which will be included for patrons. Mm-hmm. But onto this show, we have a great selection of of listener mail, uh, listener stories. There is some really cool stuff, including one of my favorite topics. We're going to finish with this: places where time does not seem to follow traditional rules, and which seem to be vaguely sinister because they no longer exist after you leave them. And you have to wonder what would have happened if you stayed. Mm. So I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Before we get there, though, we have to thank our patrons. This one's for the patrons. Patrons, you are the Joshua Speed to our Abraham Lincoln, which is to say, no matter how much they try and hide it, we would not be us without you. Of course, we'd like to thank all our patrons, but we'd especially like to thank our latest patrons. They are. Katrina Busquet, Nicola Jones, and a huge thank you to the uh, surprisingly large number of patrons who have returned to the Patreon campaign. It doesn't come up the same way for us. It doesn't tell us exactly who's come back, but we are thrilled to have you guys back. It is wonderful to see your comments and to interact with you on the various posts. So welcome back to everyone. And if you want to join the team, head on over to patreon.com slash ghost story guys at patreon.com slash ghost story guys. We'll tell you about all the cool stuff you get at the end of the show, but we will say for as little as $1 a month, you get ad-free episodes, and who doesn't want that? Ads suck. Again, that's patreon.com slash ghost story guys. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. As we said before the break, on this episode, we have a really brilliant selection of listener stories. But before we get there, we actually have some really interesting email. Um, when, and we're going to be sharing more than usual on this show. This might actually be a slightly longer show than normal because there, there was so much that I wanted to get in. And this, of course, isn't even everything, but it seems like the owls are not what they seem. Episode 132 really, really touched a nerve with some people and really kind of brought the, uh, the feedback. So I wanted, to, I wanted to make sure we share as much of that as possible. Our courteous and efficient staff is on call 24 hours a day to serve all your supernatural elimination needs. We're ready to believe you. And so the first message we have comes from Reese. And Reese says, hi guys, love the podcast and have been listening since the start. First time messaging though. We're happy to hear from you. I was just listening to the latest episode and got to the bird lady of Burra. You asked if anyone else had heard of a nun-like creature surrounded by small black birds. And now this isn't a sighting, but a weird coincidence. There's a goddess of death in the Critical Roles world for Dungeons and Dragons called the Raven Queen, who fits this description perfectly. I found it kind of funny and thought you might as well. I'll message with my actual ghost experiences at some point. Well, first off, Reese, please do. And uh, second, I always wonder with with D and know um, with The Witcher, as far as that kind of stuff goes, some of that is based on actual Eastern European lore. You know, things like the Peroniac and stuff like that. Mm. So I always wondered with Dungeons and Dragons if if some of this stuff is kind of being pulled or at least like partially pulled from someone's half remembered either perusal of a folklore book or a rainbow song. You know, it could go either way. (laughs) This next one is from Cavnis. Love, love, love the podcast. You guys have a wonderful on-air relationship and you can make me laugh in the darkest of moments. Ghost Story Guys also has the best sound production of any podcast out there. 
I fall asleep listening to GSG most nights. No offense. I find it's a very comforting <laughs> place to be in a very scary world. I do the same. No offense taken. Not listening to us, obviously. That'd be weird. <laughs> I want to believe, but I'll have to have my own experience first. So when I had a minor experience a couple of nights ago whilst drifting off to the episode about owls, it gave me reason to pause. I grew up in a rural area, not far from the land of the Falk monster. And yes, Paul, I'd love to catch a glimpse of his hairiness, but no luck so far. And I've often heard folks saying that hearing an owl hoot is a portent of things to come. As in, when an owl hoots three times, the spirit of someone close to you is trying to send you a message. The number of hoots is apparently significant. As I was drifting off the other night hearing tales of spectral owls, maybe I heard three distinct knocks. No hooting, but three clear, solid, evenly spaced knocks. I paused the podcast, no repeat, no sounds at all. The house was silent and my cat was soundly asleep. I backed up the podcast and replayed, twice, but didn't hear it again. I have no idea where it came from, as not hearing it again gave me no way to trace it. My home is brick, and there is no exterior wood. So I wondered, are the GSG sending out subliminal messages? (laughs) (laughs) Just joking. Anyway, I'll keep listening to your fabulous podcast, and for any messages that might just come through, thanks for all you do. Clearly, the beast of Boggy Creek popped round to say hello. It's a busy place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, I'd love to live near folk. Amazing. I love that uh, that that you know these things, because again, I, I don't actually know the folk monster. That's the beast of Boggy Creek. Oh, okay. That makes sense. That's okay. its other name. Of course. Fabulous. One of, one of the best cryptid semi-documentaries ever made and, and still stands up 50 years on. Is where I have to admit, I still have not seen it. Oh, it's amazing. It's still, I'm sure I've told you this, the first time it was ever, it was shown here in the UK in 1980 at six o'clock in the evening with no, <laughs> with no warning. And as a, as an, as a eight year old who loved monsters, I thought fabulous. Can't wait for this. <laughs> and by the end of it, I was shitting a brick. It had terrified me. Ironically, mostly because of the man being attacked whilst he's on the toilet and the ha- hairy hand coming through the window and grabbing the babysitter. Well, I mean, that sounds pretty goddamn scary. Yeah, it's not what you want to see on a dark November evening. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Wonderful. I recommend it. anybody who's never seen it, see it. And obviously, Pamela, who's the director's daughter, has uh, managed to wrestle ownership back to her and her family and remastered it. Lyle Blackburn's done the narration on the film and documentaries and all sorts. So it's a wonderful collection now. I was going to say, yeah, I remember hearing about the restoration because I, I love that kind of stuff. I think they did like a brand new 2K master or something. Mm, yeah. Fabulous. It looks amazing. And Kavanis, I just want to say, um, I really appreciate the kind words about the audio production. Everything that I do with ghost story guys is self-taught and that's just very nice. I like to hear that. That's a very nice compliment. This one's from Mina. And I hope I mean, I hope I said that right. If it's mine, I apologize. I'm assuming it's Mina. If I'm, if I'm wrong, give me shit. I know you follow me on Twitter, so feel free. Mina says, so here's a fun one. When she was close to, oh, this is fucking terrifying. I remember this one now. When she was close to three, my oldest started talking about her new friend, Mr. Skin. As you can imagine, I immediately hated whatever this was going to be. (laughs) But wanting to humor her in case I wasn't hearing her toddler speech clearly. Or if Mr. Skin was something innocuous she came up with because we talked a lot about her body, you know, hands, hair, brushing her teeth, 
I replied with, oh, well, that's nice. <laughs> My sweet summer child. Mr. Skin wasn't brought up often, but she would talk about him at random times during the day. Once at lunch, she was casually eating her meal and said, Mr. Skin's hungry too, but he doesn't want a sandwich. Nope. 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 Absolutely not. I think I told her, well, Mr. Skin can have some applesauce then. And she just shook her head. I asked her about six months into random Mr. Skin updates. So why is his name Mr. Skin? And she said, because he doesn't have much and wants more. <laughs> oh, man. I cannot stress enough that the only thing we really had on television while she was awake were things like Sesame Street. Yeah, Clive Barker's Sesame Street. <laughs> I did note that from time to time, our cats would park themselves in her bedroom in front of her crib and later on toddler bed. We moved into a new house recently, and the first thing I did before we painted or fixed anything up was say to the house and sprinkle sweet basil around the property line. My oldest is four now, and I asked her if she liked her new home. She does, and she said, yeah, this is my favorite house. I asked her if she remembered her friend from the old house. She confirmed she did, but Mr. Skin doesn't come to this house because I put something on the ground. So there you have it, I guess. Now, she could just be saying things that I connect to my adult paranormal believer brain, and I kind of hope she is. Yeah, me too. But as she's grown up, less and less things seem to appear to her, and I'm sort of hopeful it stays that way. Cheers to you all. Your show's tops. Love from Mina. Terrifying. He doesn't have much and wants more. That is going to haunt me till the end of my days. That, that's up there with the story we had about Bumblebuzz from episode <laughs> 70-something. Holy shit. Oh, I love scary children's friends. I think they're fabulous. I think there's so much more to this than meets the eye of me. Oh, a thousand percent. Oh, the fact that Mr. Skin can't come around because she sprinkled something around the house. The kid's not going to understand what, you know, that she even know that she even did that, let alone what it means. Yeah. So. And whose skin does Mr. Skin want? Well, that is also another very relevant question. How much of it does he need? Or is this just something he eats? <laughs> Maybe that's how he gets it. Well, that did occur to me. And none of those questions go to answers that I particularly would ever want to have to answer around my kid. <laughs> Holy shit. Oh, yes. Mr. Skin. Mr. Skin. That one's going to stay with me. Not permanently, I hope. <laughs> well, not, I, we're going to have to sprinkle sweet basil around our uh, new apartment when we finally get there. <laughs> All right. Next. From Elliot. Chaps, firstly, I just want to reiterate what the fan in your last show wrote. Was it Fiona? The show is going from strength to strength, and I'm really loving the work you guys are producing. Thank you very much. Secondly, when I saw the title of the last show, I was brimming. I knew this would be a classic, and I wasn't disappointed. Brennan, as you know, I'm somewhat familiar with raptors, especially owls, as I own a few, and a certain raven. I love the discussions you both had about owls and their lore, particularly the puzzlement from Paul on why they get their wise moniker, because as he rightly said, they're as thick as two <laughs> short planks, <laughs> albeit experts at stealth hunting and being super cool for sporting the same ankle talon concept as the infamous Velociraptor. Indeed they are. Anyway, the reason they get their falsely attributed wisdom trait is partly that the Greek goddess Athena was often carved and painted with having an owl on her shoulder. Athena was known as the god of war and all things wisdom. So by proxy, these fluffy but deadly morons gain the trait <laughs> by proxy. Bonus nerd fact. A lot of owls often have the Latin prefix Athene, 
for their scientific name, such as the adorable US-based burrowing owl's scientific name, which is Athene canicalira. They are. Murdered that. Latin was never my strong point. <laughs> the, the Greeks had it coming. <laughs> which is a wise minor burrower. I knew my useless knowledge would be arguably useful. Thanks again, guys, for the laughs and the time you both put into your excellent broadcasting. Long may it continue. Best wishes, Elliot. You're very welcome, Elliot. Yes, and thank you, Elliot. Elliot's one of the the few listeners I've had the fortune, the good fortune of meeting in person. He was in Victoria uh, earlier, late last year, I believe mm. it was, uh, from the UK. And yeah, if you want to know more, uh, I, his his Raven Loki has his own Instagram account, <laughs> and uh, it was featured, I think, on uh, either the Daily Dot or Animal Planet or something like that. Uh, and, and honestly, Elliot has some great stories about the horror that is going viral, what that can mean for your life. <laughs> it was, it was an education, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> thank you, Elliot. I, I did not know any of that about Athena or it, about the Velociraptor stuff, which is very cool. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the, why, the reason why the owl is in the original version of Clash of the Titans. Oh, no kidding. Cause it's Athena that sends it to Perseus. Ah, I have never even seen the original Clash of the Titans. <sighs> Well, I'm one of those people that the first one is a better film, but the second one, I prefer the the um, the monsters. So that that's the one with Sam Worthington. Yes. Oh, okay. hello, my name's Perseus, and I'm here to kill Medusa. <laughs> what do you mean? Of course, I'm from Athens, <laughs> mate. Yeah. Where's the bar? <laughs> Yeah, that strange naughty's trend of casting people and then not just bothering to do any accent at all. The only time that's ever worked was in the death of Stalin, <laughs> which is a masterpiece. But uh, yeah, other than that, I, I remember that. I, I liked that movie. Actually, I liked the sequel too. I thought the sequel was even better. Mm. But uh, yeah, I am ashamed to say I have not seen have not seen the original. Yes, worst three D film I've ever seen in a cinema. Oh yeah, that was in that horrible time when they were converting everything after the fact. And it just looked like muddy garbage. Yes. It took me back to being a child wearing green and red glasses, <laughs> thinking, what the hell's this? This is shit. <laughs> we were promised jetpacks. Instead, we have glaucoma. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you to everyone who wrote in. Guys, we read everything you send. We love your messages. We love hearing from you. Again, you know, it's, it's, it's just nice because yeah, you know, this is only really a couple of us who put this together. And so it's, and we're up against shows in some cases that have staffs of 10 to 15 people. And so it's, it's always wonderful to know that you're enjoying the show, that you, that it, uh, yeah, that it means something to you. And we, we just like hearing that. So again, if you want to send us a message, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com is a way to do it. There's also the ghost line and stuff like that, but we'll talk about that at the end of the show. But speaking of messages, now it's time for our stories. Strange Visitors from Ashley. I grew up in an old town in New Hampshire. The original part of the house was built in the 40s next to a cemetery. We have researched the home and have never found any strange history. On the other side of the property was an old logging road. It is now a town road. Across the street is a beautiful old farmhouse built in the early 1800s. My parents moved in during the early 80s, a few years before I was born. 
Soon after I was born, my mother recalls her first paranormal experience in the house. She awoke in the middle of the night to the sound of an old-fashioned telephone ringing. We didn't have an old telephone at that time. When I was four, my mother and I had separate experiences seeing a woman in a white dress in the bedroom area of the house. Over the years, my mom has seen many apparitions in their bedroom, including a Civil War soldier, a little girl in a white dress, an old-fashioned ironing board set up at the foot of the bed, and a man walking down the hall in khaki pants. When I was a teenager, I stood at the kitchen sink one night washing dishes. A small, dim lamp lit the sink. Behind me was a wall running the length of the kitchen. No windows to the outside. I looked up at the wall in front of me and saw the shadow of a short, bald man floating along the length of it. I watched it move along the wall until it approached the doorway and disappeared. I looked around and quickly realized I was alone. I bolted to the other end of the house to find my parents watching television in their bedroom. A few months later, my mother had just purchased a beautiful, antique drafting desk for the office. One night, I headed down the hallway towards my bedroom. As I walked past the office doorway, I saw a man dressed in a black suit sitting at the desk. His hands were folded in front of him, looking straight ahead, as if he was deep in thought. As I continued past the doorway, his head began to turn as if he was going to look at me. I stopped dead in my tracks and leaned back to look in the office doorway to find the chair pushed in. No one in the room. I remember his hair and clothing style vividly, which was fitting for the 1800s. A part of me always wondered about the history of that desk. Fast forward to 2018. My father unexpectedly went through open heart surgery. All went well with the surgery. Then, in a freak accident, the nurse nicked a main artery while aspirating his lungs. He nearly died, but by the grace of God, he survived. Soon after he returned home from the hospital, my mother woke in the middle of the night to a man standing by my father's bedside. He was wearing a khaki suit with a shaggy 70s style hair. He was leaning over my father, as if he was checking on him. As my mother turned her head to look at the man, the stranger abruptly stood up straight as if she startled him. He shook the hair out of his face, turned, and walked off through the wall. Interestingly, the khaki suit he was wearing matched the suit of the man she saw walking down the hall a few years back. My family and I talk about our experiences all the time. We wonder if the bedroom area is a portal of some kind with a cemetery next door, as most of the experiences occurred in that area of the house. In addition, we came to the realization that the occurrences began soon after I was born. I'm not sure if there's any connection between a new baby being brought into a home and the paranormal. I am curious about this, though, considering children have a tendency to be sensitive to these things. I continue to experience strange things in my home today. My parents and I live five minutes apart, and we joke that perhaps these people travel back and forth with us between our houses. Whatever the explanation is, nothing in that home has ever felt negative. I'm grateful for that. I will share the stories from my current home another day. Thank you, Ashley. That is really, really cool. And something that um, I don't know if, if you noticed, well, we talked a little bit about this in the opening to the show, but there is actually a surprising number of callbacks to past stories in this episode. And this is one of them because we had, an ep we had a story, I want to say it was on the healthcare episode, where a guy in a 70s style outfit walked into a, I want to say like a, an ICU and actually seemed to uh, fixate on one particular patient. And then that patient died, but the man was not recognized to anyone as family or friend. And he, I believe vanished when they tried to chase him down. So is there some kind of disco ghost out there just checking on the, uh, 
you know, the people close to the edge. There we go. Disco ghost. Finally. At last. The consistency of it makes me wonder, you know? Mm. Yeah. Well, khaki is a very distinct clothing item to be seen in as well. It's a very unique kind of color that you would often only really associate with soldiers in the desert, perhaps. And I always like stories where phantasms seem surprised to be seen as well. They're oh, yeah, absolutely. some of my favorites, but they seem like, oh, what? You can see me? And, and sometimes I wonder if that goes to what you and I have talked about in terms of the, uh, the shifting timeline thing. Mm. You know, you're actually just ruining someone's placid evening in 1975 <laughs> and, and uh, you've become a ghost story for them. <laughs> or 2050, you know, which may be optimistic at this point, but I could, I can dream. Yeah. Maybe khaki will be back in by then. <laughs> uh, considering all I wear is khaki trousers, I'm hoping. <laughs> Ahead of the curve. Thank you again, Ashley. Harry Park Temple from Ian. I've discovered your podcast over the last few months whilst working from home. I've fallen into a pattern of listening to 80s music in the morning and then go to podcasts after lunch, and yours has become a firm favourite. I'm a big believer in ghosts and the paranormal, although as I've got older, I've learnt to look at the unexplained from several angles, and always the default to ghosts, like I used to as a youngster. My mum was one of four children, three girls and one boy. The family lived in a terraced council house in Wolverhampton in the Midlands in the UK, from I believe the late 1940s until the mid-1980s. One night my mum and her older sister were sat talking in their bedroom and both happened to look up at the same time and saw a sailor stood on the landing. Their father had served in the Navy during World War II so I think their initial instinct was that it was their dad trying on his uniform. They soon realised that it wasn't. This sailor then turned and disappeared in front of their eyes. As a background to this story, there is a legend in the local area of a sailor, Harry Park Temple who tragically died in the late 1920s when he tried to save some boys that had been playing football on a frozen pond. The ice had broken and they had fallen in. I understand two of the boys perished. I often wonder whether my mum and sister saw the ghost of Harry Park Temple and whether he was attracted to their house by the presence of four youngsters, given that his final act was trying to save some kids. Maybe there's something in that, or maybe it's just nonsense but it's always been thought of mine. That's not the only strange thing about that house, though. In the 80s, after my grandparents had both died, my mum's youngest sister was the last family member left living in the house. She met a guy who worked for the local council. They eventually decided to move into a new house together. The boyfriend, knowing that the council would completely gut and redecorate the house once it was empty, had started unstripping the wallpaper and the polystyrene ceiling tiles and other basic bits here and there around the house. I say I've never seen a ghost, but I have seen something that I just can't explain. One day, I went round to the house with my mum to help with some of the tidying up and such, and we were in the upstairs front bedroom when I saw something that just didn't make any sense. I noticed that all along the walls and all across the ceiling were greyish handprints and shoe prints. Even as a young and naive seven-year-old, I knew that something just wasn't right with that. I tried making sense of it by thinking maybe the walls and ceilings were covered in boards and the builders had made their marks when handling them. But the more I looked, 
the more I realised that they were just normal walls and ceilings. The hand and shoe prints were all in sequence, as if they had walked up and across the walls and ceiling. I remember saying to my mum that it looked weird. She tried explaining it away by saying maybe the builders had made the marks when they built the house. It always stayed in the back of my mind. About nine or ten years later, I was at my mum's youngest sister's new house and a programme came on TV about ghosts, which got us all talking. My mum's sister suddenly said, Yeah, we used to get those weird hand and footprints in our house. Straight away, the memory came back to me. I'd always known there would be something not right about those prints. It turns out that these prints would appear, then they would get painted over, but then reappear again after a few days. They only stopped appearing when they were covered with wallpaper or ceiling tiles. One final thing that happened in the old house is that my auntie heard her dad walk up the stairs one morning, two or three years after he had died. She knows she hadn't imagined it, because her dog heard it as well and started to bark. So you and I were talking off air and you were saying that the footsteps on the wall and ceiling is similar to something that happened in, the, or that was recorded in, was it the vertical plane? Yes. A legendary paranormal true story from the mid eighties here in the UK, just outside of Chester in a town called, well, town, a large village called Doddleston. Can you tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, a guy who was a teacher ended up moving into this beautiful old cottage and started to renovate it. And they noticed as they were doing the decorating that what looked like weird footprints started appearing on the wall coming out of a heater and across the wall and up the ceiling and things. And at first they just, you know, as, as, as is often the case in situations like this, they just went, mm, that's a bit strange. <laughs> <laughs> sure. You know, they're not my footprints. Nobody else is here. So I don't know who's walking up the wall. So they were, they were trying to, you know, they kind of explained it away. And it all kind of little things started to build up. Like he'd come downstairs and find um, pyramids of cans or beer cans built on the floor. And because there were three of them living in the house, there was this guy and his partner and his friend who was staying with them for free and she was helping doing the decorating as, as payment for rent. They all kind of thought it was each other. Right. And then he borrowed a... a an old BBC micro computer from school to do some work on. And that's when it started getting really weird because then they started to get messages from someone who was writing in the 16th century. The 16th century? Yeah. On a com Okay. On a computer that wasn't sure. obviously attached to the internet. Okay. I'm following you. It's all very strange, yeah. but I'm following you. Yeah. And it would, they would just turn up, there'd be a file appear on the, on the desktop and they'd open it up and it'd be a new message. And so what happened over the next two years that they, they ended up having this kind of conversation with someone who didn't understand how they could speak to him or where they were. And then somebody else from the future turned up and it was all a bit odd. Um, and it was investigated by some leading paranormal researchers at the time. And a lot of people just brush it off as just being too wacky or a elaborate hoax. And so the book just fell out of print and became one of the most expensive paranormal books you could buy. Secondhand copies were going for like five, six hundred pounds. 
until I remember recently. you and I were you and I were cruising eBay several times and checking <laughs> yeah. for copies, and yeah, they were all hundreds of dollars. And then, as if by magic, like a blast from the past, the author Ken Webster, who's the gentleman whose house this all happened in, got wind of everything that happened and has spent pandemic updating and reformatting the book and re-released it a couple of weeks ago because he was sick of people having to pay so much money for his story and he wants as many people as possible to read it. So he's re-released it and you can get a copy now for £15 rather than 500 Which I have to assume you've done. Of course. That is fascinating. If, if you weren't telling me, if someone was just telling me the story, I, I would think, well, that seems kind of mm, a little bit bullshitty. Mm. But you know, if, if you, if there's enough there that you think there's some legitimacy to it, then I'm genuinely fascinated. It's all, it's, it's, it's crazy is what mm. there is. there's a, a Clint Howard movie from the eighties called evil speak yeah. where he summons Satan through a computer. And it kind of <laughs> makes me think of that. You know, I, I just think this can't possibly be a thing that exists, but here we are. I mean, like I say, it's a very strange case. Well, before the internet, the internet wasn't even widely available till towards the end of the 90s here in the UK. Sure. Um, you know, only government officials and secret military bunkers had access to anything like the internet in the 80s. But certainly it wasn't anything like that. And they obviously, you know, an old cottage that they were renovating had no possibility of being able to to bring these messages in from anywhere. There was no external source they could be coming from at all. So, And it, it couldn't have been someone in the house just fucking with them. Well, it could have been. I mean, there's there's always that kind of, was it someone doing something unconsciously or, or some other such nonsense? But right, um, right. it seems remarkable that a teacher and his, pi- and his partner and, and their friend would be doing this. And the fact that here we are almost 40 years later, that he's brought it back out yeah. to, to, the, to the modern world where this story has achieved almost cult status, ironically. And, and dragged it into the modern era and in the cold light of day, you know, clearly opening himself up to, to allegations of all kinds of stuff. And I think if it was just a hoax or a, a practical joke, you would leave it behind. You wouldn't want to drag it out now. The cynic in me thinks if he sees that, you know, there's money to be made, then, you know, uh, you know that, that there's that. But um, it just the, because when you and I, again, when, when we were talking off air, I suggested that maybe in the story, it's possible that the boards had just been trod upon by builders, but you were saying that's very unlikely for the top board, whatever the, you said. What, what was the name again? Plasterboards. Right. They're not going to be walking on that. Yeah. Or if it was an old council house, they would have basically knocked it back to brick and then plastered it all. So it would be solid plaster. It wouldn't be wood or anything like that because that's not how they built council houses over here. Right, 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 right. Interesting. So there's you just know. Ghost of Lionel Richie dancing on the ceiling. <laughs> Well, it was the mid eighties, you know, there was a lot going on here. A lot of partying. <laughs> I was going to uh, say, just, just tornadoes of cocaine blowing through uh, England. Not perhaps in Wolverhampton, I suggest. <laughs> okay. Fair, fair. Speaking of, of books, I actually just found out as we were going in to record that uh, my book, A Strange Little Place, will no longer be available everywhere fine books are sold. It is going out of print. It is, I, I just heard from Llewellyn today, so... I, I get to buy as many copies as I want of the remaining stock for 80% off retail. And uh, then I get the rights back. So mm-hmm. I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do with that. But if you want to get a copy of A Strange Little Place, now's the time because soon 
Soon it will be selling on eBay for six hundred. I'm just kidding. It's not not a chance. Not a fucking <laughs> That's why chance. you're buying eight all the stock. <laughs> that's right. But I can't sign them because that'll bring down the value. <laughs> I mean, that's the other aspect of the vertical plane as well. A cynic would say, "Well, surely the author would have kept some, and maybe it was him that has been boosting the price all these years." But then again, if that's the case, why would he then? cut his nose off to spite his face by bringing it out updated considerably less. Yeah, that, that seems less likely. Well, I, I know you've reached out to him, so I'm, I'm hope, genuinely hoping he comes on the show because I, I want to hear him, uh, hear, hear, his, hear the story from him. And I'm also going to pick up a copy of Vertical Plane just because I'm, I'm desperate to know more. Yeah, I'm, I'm delighted because, to be honest, he's, he's kept himself completely out of the limelight for the best part of four years. So it would be wonderful to get a chance because he's somebody I've wanted to speak to since I first heard the story in the early 90s. And that is a strange behavior for someone if they are indeed seeking fame mm. to just disappear. Like that, that's, yeah, that seems very unlikely. A little bit later, I, I want to talk to you about one of your recent episodes because I was just enthralled by it. And it, it was another one of those things that you know, people always say experiencers are just looking for attention or trying to get rich. And <laughs> very rarely is there ever a case where these people have had great success following an actual experience. Yeah. Unless they're a masochist. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's it. I, I generally, it seems like the only people who've done really, really well from these things, not, not across the board, but generally are people who are transparent bullshit artists, like a number <laughs> of the folks you and I have talked about. <laughs> No comment. Names redacted for legal purposes. <laughs> Thank you so much for that story, Ian. Superstition Mountain Birds from Terry. In the early 90s, I was living in Phoenix, Arizona, and had recently moved to a new apartment complex outside of city limits near the Superstition Mountains. Rent was cheap for a nice apartment, since the location was a pretty far drive from the city itself. Within a few months of moving in, my good friends Mary and Jim came for a visit from the Midwest. I gave them my bedroom and I slept in the living room on the couch while they stayed. One morning, Jim got up early to go outside and sit on my balcony to watch the sun rise over the desert. He hadn't been outside long when he came running back in and wake me up. He said, sorry to wake you, but you have to come see this. The sun had just come up, so I got up and followed him out to the balcony. He pointed to a gigantic bird-type creature perched on top of a pointed rooftop on the building across from my apartment. This thing was huge. The only way I can describe it is that it looked prehistoric. It was totally gray in color with enormous wings and a gargoyle-looking head. We had no idea what it was. We sat there and watched it stare back at us for several minutes before it took off. The wingspan must have been 12 feet across. To this day, we have no idea what it was. The closest thing that it looks like is a condor, but the coloring is all wrong. It looked like something from the dinosaur age. Jim is an ex-marine, not prone to exaggeration, and he still remembers it vividly and cannot find anything that resembles it. Later that same day, Jim and Mary were out sightseeing, and I had an appointment for work that took me further east into the desert and closer to the superstitions. I parked my car at my destination and cracked the window the smallest amount, about a quarter inch. In the desert heat, you do this so the windows don't shatter from the intense heat of the day. Holy shit, I had no idea. After about 30 minutes at my appointment, I came back to my car to see a big bird flying around inside it. There is no way it could have gotten into my small sedan without me seeing it fly past me, or get in through the small crack in the window. 
It was a state bird of Arizona, a cactus wren, and about 8 inches long, so it's not a small bird. After what happened that morning, I couldn't believe it. I have no idea how that bird got into my car, and after the events of that morning, I was stunned. And so, Paul, there have been accounts of large, almost like dinosaur-type flying creatures seen, has there not? Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Pterosaurs are something that has often been reported for years, especially in states like Arizona and Texas and New Mexico, even going back to one of the great cryptid mysteries of an alleged photo that lots of people, one of those Mandela moments where lots of people think that they've seen a particular picture of a group of Civil War soldiers with a pterosaur nailed to a barn that they'd killed. Okay. But the picture doesn't exist. Nobody can find the magazine it was printed in. It's one of the modern mysteries of cryptozoology. Why do we all think we've seen this picture when it simply doesn't exist? Nobody can find it. Do you know where it started? Where that, the first person to, to seem to recall this? Uh, it's been bouncing around since the 90s. And it's one of those things where people go, oh, yeah, I've seen that. And there are lots of sort of modern fakes of it. Right. But nobody can find the original because people remember seeing it in the 50s. And people think, oh, well, it must have been in Fate magazine. But the, no, nothing in Fate. Nobody can find it in most other magazines that were around in the 50s and 60s. So it's just sort of one of these memories that everybody seems to be aware of but nobody can find where it began. But there have been, as we were saying, stories of real life encounters that go back to the sort of 1840s, 1850s. There were plenty of newspaper reports of cowboys out on the ranches encountering giant pteranodons and pterosaurs and the like flying around. And they're still reported even into the modern age. And obviously they look so strikingly different to everything else that as that story there refers to. They look prehistoric. They can't be anything else. Yeah. There's no mention in that story of feathers of anything like that. Like this, this is just like some leathery abomination from time immemorial. Yeah. Yeah. Ken Gerhardt, you man on this subject. Okay. One of Ken's first books is about the whole big bird, thunderbird dinosaur sightings. Interesting. And you've talked to Ken about that. Have you not? I think we've actually referenced the Ken's episode because Ken's yes, one who works in the zoo, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. San Antonio Zoo. Uh, one of the first episodes I did, we were talking to him about um, some of these strange big bird sightings. Because obviously, they kind of get roped in with thunderbirds, which are another allegedly non-existent bird that, sim- that people just are mistakenly not understanding what they're seeing. And they're misinterpreting a normal bird. Most people who say that they've seen these giant eagles or whatever, say that you know they're talking 20, 30 feet across. And there's a famous incident from a guy who was in a in a small plane in Alaska who came across one whilst he was in the sky and said that the pla- the bird was as big as the plane he was in. Jesus. That's not a bird at that point. That's a winged behemoth. <laughs> That's a reason to land. That's what that uh, is. Yes, and stay there. <laughs> Although if it's that big, it can pick you up, so you're not even safe on the ground. No. Imagine a world where we are no longer the apex predator, mm. the world where there are giant gargoyles that fly around. Actually, like one of the owl stories we had, mm-hmm. the thing that was the size of a smart car sitting up in the tree. Yeah. If that yeah. takes exception to, you know, your brightly colored uh, floral shirt, for example, that some mm-hmm. of us might be wearing at this moment, and they just swoop down and off you go. What a horrifying thought. Yeah. Well, they're not that far back in our modern history. Okay. Everybody knows about the legendary flightless bird 
the mower that lived in New Zealand. And there was an eagle, I've forgotten the name of it. However, there was an eagle that fed on mowers and oh. mowers would grow to nine feet tall. They were like a, an ostrich on steroids. And this eagle fed on them. So when the mower died out, so did this eagle. And that's only 500 years, 400 years ago. You know, I, I'm very sympathetic to the cause of the environment. You know, I, I, I recognize <laughs> the, the harm we've done as a species to our ecosystem. However, I have to think sometimes that, you know, if it was to establish us at the top of the pecking order and got rid of the giant man-eating birds, I mean, maybe it was worth it. So it's, it's not that far away, really, in the timeline of history. And of course, people say that they haven't died out. They're still scattered across the Pacific. Well, it makes me think about the, the concept, again, of, of like time slips or just, you know, the permeability of, of the barrier between timelines. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe they're just, every now and again, you get one of these things floating around and it's thinking, what are all these delicious little morsels down there? Mm. Of course, some people would also say that would explain a lot of people that disappear in remote locations who seem to vanish into thin air, almost as if they've oh. gone upwards. Oh, I do not like that, Paul. I do not <laughs> like that. That gave me the bad kind of chills. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's a plausible. If, if we are to believe some of the witnesses that have claimed to have seen giant birds of all descriptions, then that would be, if they do exist, then we, of course, are, uh, as you refer to, uh, a, a tasty morsel. And the car is just a Pringles can. <laughs> that's what that bird was terry that was an advanced scout <laughs> thank you for those uh enduring nightmares terry i hope that you stay safe from the giant birds that apparently live in arizona six stories from connor one thing before my stories my mother is a very spiritual person and between my siblings i've always been a bit more spiritually tuned in than my brothers and my dad Ever since I can remember, I've been able to notice a change in a room. Lots of times I'd get a sharp pitch ringing in my ear and my attention would be shifted almost immediately to somewhere around me. I also hear things a lot, little psts and things like my name being called out of nowhere. As I've gotten older, that little ring has actually saved me from some car crashes and avoiding some pretty bad situations. Quick example, I was at a party one time with a friend of mine in a town where if the wrong people are there, things can go south real quick. We were sitting in the smoke sack in the backyard of a house party, and it was just me, my buddy, and a couple of other people. A couple of guys walked in, and when I mean my eardrums felt like they were going to pop, the ringing was so loud it caught me off guard. I kind of ignored it for a couple of minutes, but it just kept going, and it started to give me a headache. These guys pulled out what they said was just some weed from a dispensary, which they lit up and started to pass around. I grabbed it when it did, but I swear my eyes went foggy, so I said no thanks and left. My friend was concerned and followed. After I left the shack, I went back to normal almost instantly and decided it was time to leave. Later, I was told by someone who had stayed at the party that one of the girls in the shack with us had actually had to go to the hospital with a possible OD. I'm not saying the joint was the real reason, for all I know is she wasn't questioning anything those boys were giving her. Either way, I'm kind of glad I didn't stay. Could have been me. Anyway, to my stories. 
we're going to go out on this uh, quite lengthy series of stories from Connor because there's some really great stuff and there's stuff I think worth talking about. But I actually wanted to comment on this because one, I think we all kind of have that built-in sense of, just to one degree or another, I don't know if this is a good idea. Mm. And I'm a huge, huge proponent of listening to that voice, particularly if someone's given you drugs. Because, you know, once upon a time, that was a laugh. But I mean, with, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but over here in North America, we have a massive problem with poison drugs. Drugs are being um, adulterated with fentanyl, mm, which is yeah. causing, so you guys are having the same problem? Yeah, especially with heroin. Yeah, there you go. And and here it's it's in a lot of recreational drugs. There have been no cases in, in Canada, at least, that I'm aware of, of dispensaries selling marijuana tainted with fentanyl. But I do know that, um, how can I put this? Prior to legalization, there were some very extra legal operations that were using uh, a little bit of it to enhance the effects of, of their terrible, terrible biker weed. And I know one guy who actually had a heart attack because of this. He, uh, he smoked a joint that had been laced, uh, and yeah, it, it, it put him flat on his back. And so just, just, this is just a PSA from uncles, Brennan, Paul, just listen to that voice and, uh, be real careful about who you're taking drugs from these days yeah. because it's, it can go real bad, real fast. And I mean, you know, if, if you've got Narcan nearby, that can help, but, uh, still, you know, that's, that's not a guarantee and, and you just don't want to have to end up in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. Fentanyl is bad news. It's, it's not anything you can handle at all. I don't care what anybody says. You know, I think some of the sad overdoses over here, they've got like a hundred lethal doses in. Oh yeah. It's an extraordinarily powerful opiate. Oof. You know, a very small amount is enough. I think it's micrograms is what it's mm. administered in. And it's administered, I believe in slow, typically in slow release patches, mm. not in, uh, yeah, you know, sort of straight up that will, that will just end your life. And yeah. so again, you know, I mean, I, I had a, a little incident th that I told Paul about off air and that was with a, thankfully nothing so serious, but you know, I, I, a medication I typically buy from, shall we say a gray market seller, they put the wrong capsules in the bottle. And I realized when I had some pretty intense and surprising side effects, uh, and <laughs> thankfully it wasn't serious. It turned out to be a very normal consequence of too many B vitamins, but I was not aware that there were B vitamins in this capsule. Cause typically I, I would, the capsule I buy, uh, which I used to treat my depression has no B vitamins. And so that was fairly innocuous, but that could very easily have not been quite so innocent. And so you just, we're not going to tell you kids don't do drugs cause you know, Let's be we're not hypocrites. Here. Yeah, we're not hypocrites. <laughs> but uh, holy shit, be careful. Be careful who you take, who you accept drugs from. I I follow actually. There's a, a Twitter account. I don't know what it's called, but they share the results of drugs that have been tested, what it's supposed to be, and what it actually tested as. And sometimes the the gulf between those two things is truly chilling. Holy shit! You know, it's supposed to be say MDMA, for example, and it's. Not at all. There's no MDMA anywhere near it. The, the closest you get is the, the various letters in the names of the substances that are actually in the, in the capsule. So, yeah. Yes. And we've all seen that hard-hitting documentary, Reefer Madness. Let that be a <laughs> warning to you all. That slice of life. Next thing you know, you're listening to jazz and eating chocolate. Will the terror ever cease? No. Avoid jazz. Stay cool <laughs> drugs.
I'm just kidding. Jazz is awesome. Check out Miles Davis sketches of Spain. But anyways. Yeah. Another, an, another advert for, <laughs> for the dangers of drugs. <laughs> yeah. If you want to stay off drugs, read about Miles Davis. Yes. Anyways, you can enjoy the fruits of, of Miles labor by listening to sketches of Spain. All right. So on, on to the first story from Connor. I have two brothers, one old and one younger. My older brother and I shared a bedroom. And our room was directly down the hall from our parents, and halfway down the hall, there's a doorway to the left into the living room. To the right is the bathroom. From where our bunk bed was positioned in our room, we could see straight out the door. If the door was open, which is how I liked it when I was younger, you'd be able to see straight into my parents' room if their door was open too. My parents used to leave both doors open for us because my older brother had night terrors on and off for around two years. Being a light sleeper, it really sucked, and for two years, sleep wasn't really something I got. His night terrors would always happen between 11 and 1 in the morning, but it could happen again later in the night, so lots of times, me and my brother would be awake around 2, and after he calmed down and my parents went to bed, we would talk until he fell asleep. Both of us faced our parents' room when we slept, and on more than one occasion, I can remember laying there nodding in and out when I would see what I could best describe as a static figure walking between my parents' room and my brother and I. I used to see it all the time, just walking back and forth, but never into either of the rooms, and then it would walk into the living room. The figure was usually adult-sized, but that could vary. It never really concerned me. I just remember being confused and falling asleep. When my brother and I got older, I told him about it, and he kind of looked at me in surprise because he thought it was related to his sleep disturbances and didn't think I could see it. That's when it clicked that I only ever saw the static figure after his episodes. After thinking about it for a while, I kind of came to the conclusion that maybe it was one of my grandparents walking the hall to comfort us, making sure he didn't have any more bad dreams. And I mean, that's very possible. That's, that's an, certainly an interesting theory. Um, but it did kind of remind me of something that's happened to me a few times. There'll be times uh, where I'll be having a really bad dream and like a bad, a bad dream where there's this sickly feeling in my chest. That's the best way I can describe it. Like in the dream there's this massing sense of danger and peril and, and like, I get this nauseous feeling. And whenever I have those dreams, my cat wakes me up. My cat will be, uh, sitting next, like on the floor next to the bed, meowing up at me. And as soon as I wake up from those dreams, she'll just toddle off and do her thing. And I haven't had one in a while, but it's almost like she somehow knows that there's something wrong and that she needs to pull me back from it. And I mean, my cat is not super clever. I love her, but you know, she's no Rhodes scholar, but at the same time, it seems like she somehow picks up on this. Maybe that's what, what's happening. Maybe when this thing appears, that's almost jarring your brother out of that. Though we've, we've had stories before on here and, and in my, my book, strange little place, formerly where all fine books were sold. We've had stories of, of not shadow people, but static people. And it seems to depend, you know, they, they're less sinister typically described than shadow people. We can attribute motives to them, but they don't seem to have like a feeling one way or the other. And I'm curious why they're different from shadow people because shadow people are almost universally, there's something negative associated with them. Whereas these seem to be more neutral. And then we also have people who are, we've seen creatures or, or yeah, or people who are blindingly white. And I wonder if that's coincidence, if you're seeing different versions of the same thing, or if there is in fact some kind of spectrum. Mm. of these things. Mm. It'd be interesting to see if there are any encounters with other colors. The purple people? Well, maybe. Who can mm. say? Who knows? You know, there are a pantheon of ghosts of a variety of colors, red ladies, green ladies, blue ladies. True. 
So if you would look at it on a possibility spectrum, then surely if people see different colors when they see spirits, why wouldn't they see different colors of these static or shadowy entities? Just because the majority of them tend to be darker, or as you mentioned there, some of them are, are blindingly white. Why aren't we getting, or are there reports that simply one of those things that people just don't pick on up because it's not the shadow man, it's not the hat man. You mentioned of, of color and spectrum. That actually reminded me of something I wanted to run past you. Recently, you had the researcher Zelia Edgar on mm-hmm. your show. And so I obviously, you know, listen to your show, really thought that was a great episode. And so I've been watching some of her videos on YouTube and she talked about this one entity and I don't remember the specific name of it because I'm shit for details sometimes, but it disappeared once the sun started breaking basically. Or it would disappear when the lights come on. And we've talked about that on the show. I mean, Hmm. you say there's a shadow person, you turn on the light, it's gone. And it got me thinking, I wonder, is it possible that these things occupy the same uh, wavelength or spectrum of light as like, like say sunlight or, you know, electrical light, but it's so much weaker Hmm. than those things that when a more powerful light sort of appears or it can almost force it out of the space. Hmm. You know, and again, I know fuck all about lights. There could be someone who knows a lot about, you know, light spectrums kind of chuckling to themselves in the tub right now. But um, (laughs) I just wonder, is it possible that, you know, because Kiel always talked about these things existing in the ultraviolet spectrum, Hmm. you know, because there was this idea of, you know, a lot of people who were seeing uh, alien activity close up they have these actinic burns, which are consistent with UV exposure. Mm. And so I wonder if it's possible that these things occupy a wavelength of light, which is so, yeah, so weak mm. in order for it to become visible. You know, it, 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 whatever wavelengths of light they typically exist in, you know, they're quite strong, but we can't see that. So in order for them to be perceptible to us, they have to occupy these wavelengths, which are perhaps not natural to them, or it's, it's an additional strain. And when a more powerful light source, source enters, it cancels out hmm? the their appearance. Hmm? What do you think? Absolutely, of course. And at the end of the day, sunlight is essentially radiation, isn't it? So <laughs> who's to say? And it doesn't necessarily have to be ultraviolet. It could be infrared. You know, there are two parts to the end of the spectrum when it comes of to Of course, colors. yeah, that too. So why not? If, if they exist on a certain wavelength or frequency of light, brighter light would simply swamp it, and therefore they then become invisible. But you often hear that when people describe seeing creatures that are blacker than black, and it's that what makes them noticeable, is that they are darker than the night. Why not? Yeah. Speaking of, of strange things seen, I, I was mentioning to you again off air that on the way home from, uh, from breakfast this morning, I was listening to not your most recent episode, but one of your most recent episodes about the, is it the Pentuck incident? Yes, in Wales. I wonder, if, could you talk about that a little bit? Because I, th- I think it's a fascinating case, and I think the audience would really get a lot out of it. Yeah. So I spoke with the primary first-hand witness to what can only be described as a UFO event over the small Welsh village of Penturk in the beginning of 2016, which was a, a collection of high strangeness, talking of Kiel, where people became aware of a lot of activity around their home in the sky where planes were just buzzing around constantly as though they were watching for something. And then after three days, several witnesses reported seeing a variety of lights 
and then, to their amazement, a giant illuminated pyramid appeared above the fields at the back of their homes, um, which was then intercepted by military aircraft. A dogfight of sorts occurred, and then it came to a cataclysmic conclusion with two large explosions which rocked the area and were registered on seismologists' instruments in the area. And that's where the, the weirdness really began, because lots of weird army personnel started to turn up, people in all-white paper suits scouring the areas, lots of wasteland was tidied up meticulously. Yeah, uh, the, the witness you were speaking to, is it was it Kaz Clark? Kaz that, Clark, yeah. Yeah, she described actually finding what she thinks is the impact crater mm. or the, the, the explosion area. And yeah. she said the trees were harvested way ahead of schedule. In fact, in violation of local ordinances. Yeah, yeah. I'm seeing the pictures. Oh, you have? Okay. Um, something hit those trees. Fascinating. Absolutely. Because if, if you live anywhere near a wood or a forest, or you've even seen a tree get blown over, it goes roots first. That's what brings it down. It doesn't snap in half. Strangely enough, when I was speaking to Yowie Dan, when we were talking about his documentary track, there's a bit in that where somebody tries to break a, a small sapling, you know, probably two inches, and they can't do it. They can't snap this sapling. So, you know, we're talking about a 60-foot tree that's been sh shattered in the middle. Huh. So the only thing that can do that is an impact. And it wasn't lightning because there wasn't a storm. Right. And there's no burn marks there. So something clearly hit those trees and then... Within a couple of weeks, they were all felled out of season. Mm. And there was the report as well of the hospital, which yes. had, was, they described smoke falling from the sky. Mm. And the, was it the MOD, the Ministry of Defense, they, they tried to claim it was um, sort of like a mock incendiary device or part yes. of some training exercise, mm. but those, they don't have like a percussive blast no. and they also do not produce smoke. No. So just, it's none of the stories like a big, add up. Yeah. No, no, none of it does. And it's one of those things. And you know, as, as we talk about people who have experienced strange things, you know, Kaz has been absolutely eviscerated online by other ufologists, by by other researchers. And it's it's remarkable, really. It's one of those experiences that if you listen to it and look at it in the cold light of day, and even if you don't believe all of it, even if you only believe portions of it, it's still a deeply troubling encounter on whatever level. Oh, yeah. What really caught my, caught my ear, you know, listening to it was the fact that there was a green glow to mm. some of what she saw. Mm. And that is so consistent with things we talked about in the show. Mm. I mean, with, with my own experiences, you know, my, my one personal UFO experience was, I don't know, grade six or seven. I perceived it as coming from above the mountain in front of my house. I can't remember the one it's called. My friend perceived it as having come from Boulder Mountain, which is the other direction. But it was like we were bathed in green light. Mm. It was like the air around us turned green. Mm. And I remember looking at my hands and, th and not being able to comprehend what was going on because all of a sudden everything was just green mm. and almost kind of glittery in a way. Mm. And then, it, I don't know, it lasted a couple seconds and it was gone. And we sort of looked at each other and said, well, time to go inside. But it was green. And then mm. there was another account that I received from someone who refused to go on the record, uh, or I should say refused to be identified because they were pretty embarrassed about having seen it. But they, they were out driving with their son south of town and they saw what 
at first they thought was a helicopter until they realized that it was not disturbing nearby trees and it was wreathed in a kind of green mist. Mm. And of course we've done episodes where there were, you know, um, a person will appear in a green mist or a green fog or a green mm-hmm. opening will appear on a wall. So there, there is, su- or even uh, rather from Australia, I had a, someone from the book who had an encounter in the Blue Mountains. She saw a green comet strike the earth. She thought her, her and her friends were dead. She mm-hmm. thought they were going to die because this, this green, well, again, what she thought was a comet came towards them. She closed her eyes. She braced. She screamed. She felt the impact. She felt like the, the shock wave. Her, when she opened her eyes, her friends looked at her like she was nuts mm-hmm. because they had not seen or felt anything. Mm-hmm. But this green burst of, of energy had fallen from the sky and impacted the earth. So there's a real consistency across all these stories, which is, again, quite apart from the fact that she's on your show I, I and she sounds reasonable, but I tend to believe her, which mm-hmm. raises so many questions. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It is a jaw-dropping experience that she described. All right, so on to the next story from Connor. When I was about 15, my older brother went to university, so I took over his old room in the basement. It was just me down there, with my parents and little brother, all upstairs. I was very bad at getting up in the morning back then, so my mum would come down and wake me up. One night, I was half asleep facing the wall my bed was up against. I felt the edge of the bed sink like my mum had come down to wake me. But about 20 minutes before this, I'd gotten up and gone to the bathroom, so I knew it was still only around 3am. I felt the bed sink much more than when my mum would sit down. Then I felt someone took my pinky toe on my closest sunken side. I called out to my mum, expecting her to say something, but there was no response. I turned over and saw no one, and my bedroom door completely closed. I still felt the imprint of someone sitting though. It took a minute to process all of this, but once it clicked, I was out of there like Usain Bolt. (laughs) I smacked the light switch on the way out, but didn't turn back till every light in the basement was on. I told my mum about it the next morning, and she told me that it was probably my grandpa, who passed before I was born, coming to check up on me. She told me my grandpa used to pull people's toes to annoy them when they were growing up, so she thinks it was just him coming to say hi. I mean, I do love the visit, but next time you grab my toe, don't make it at 3am in the pitch black, you dick. (laughs) Yeah, that's rough. (laughs) That grandpa's got a real dark sense of humor there. (laughs) The the sitting on the bed thing, you know, again, I've, I've mentioned this before, but that happened to Nick in our old building. She came out to the living room to ask why I'd sat on the bed and then left. And I, Mm. I hadn't, hadn't come anywhere near the bed. I've been sitting sitting in front of the computer the entire time. I've seen something like that. Was that, was that the, the experience with your brother? No, um, I didn't see that. I just heard about it. The one I saw was at my auntie's pub, ironically enough, in Chester. Um, oh, and okay. they, ha- they had a poltergeist called Fred. Right. And uh, I once walked past my cousin's room to see one of their Labradors laid on its back in, uh, in ecstasy because it was quite happily, clearly having its tummy stroked. <laughs> and next to where the Labrador was laid, there was clearly the indentation of someone's bottom. Wow. And the dog was moving about and the fur was twitching a little bit. Could have been nerves, I suppose. Jesus. It, to all intents and purposes, it looked like someone was sat there and nobody had been in that room. It wasn't 
you know, it wasn't a depression formed by somebody getting up quickly and hiding or something. There was nobody else there. Right. So it was just me and the dogs. I mean, when I finally shuffle off this mortal coil, I'm certainly, if I can come back to hang out with dogs, I'm certainly going to do it. I don't know if there's many people I'd bother coming back for, but. <laughs> yeah. Fred was a good sort. He was, uh, he was a cheeky, cheeky poltergeist. He was always opening and closing doors and tickling dogs. <laughs> And the dogs quite liked him, which is quite unusual for a haunting. That's just a good point, yeah, because dogs usually react quite uh, negatively. Mm. Yeah, yeah. They would always, you could always watch, see them just looking, watching somebody walking about. They would always like, you could see them, their eyes moving. Uh, clearly, this was not Mr. Skin. <laughs> yeah, clearly. All right, so the third story from Connor. This was the same year as my last story, taking place when my older brother came home from university for the weekend and went to a party. Being a light sleeper, I usually wake up if people are talking in the living room downstairs. Having shared a room with my brother for most of his high school career, I was pretty used to dealing with his drunk ass when he got home from a party. So when I woke up to people talking in the downstairs living room, I assumed he and his buddy were home. Loving to see him drunk and stupid, I went out to the bathroom, but when I came out, it was pitch dark and no one was there. Being so sure he was home, I turned the light on and walked into his room to make sure he wasn't passed out somewhere, but he wasn't there either. I forgot to mention that my parents and little brother were gone to a hockey tournament, so it was my duty to make sure my older brother didn't choke on his own vomit. It's a lot of responsibility. When I was in his room, which was downstairs too, I heard a cup fall on the ground in the kitchen upstairs, which is directly above his room. I went upstairs and once again found it pitch dark. Trust me, if he was home, he would be in the fridge if he wasn't already downstairs. So I turned on the light and saw the cup on the kitchen floor, but no brother. I watched TV with the lights on until he got home. That night was almost like the starting point of a lot of random cups falling on the ground in the kitchen, but only if someone was alone in the house. I mean, that almost sounds poltergeisty. Yeah, and unusually respectful of people's crockery. Oh, in terms of just dropping it and not smashing it? Yeah, usually just throw it against the wall. I hate this cup. I hate this glass. Well, this no, this is the happy toe-tugging poltergeist. So he's, <laughs> he's just kind of a scamp, maybe a little bit of a pervert, but he's not angry. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see that. Actually, I've seen that movie. There's a comedy from the eighties called school spirit about this guy who I think he ends up in a coma. And so he's got a certain amount of time before he's got to do something before the, you know, what it like save, he got to save the summer camp before he dies or he'll get to go back to his body. But if he doesn't, he'll be trapped forever. So he, he uses this as, as an opportunity to woo a bunch of college girls and, and, Anyways, it's on, it was on Prime. It's absolutely filthy, but the just the perverted poltergeist in me had a lot of fun with it. <laughs> <laughs> Won't someone think of the perverted poltergeist, Paul? That's what I'm coming back as. Absolutely. Going to hang out with dogs and we're going to have, nope, I was going to say sexy adventures. I don't like the way that sounds. <laughs> Let's just, sorry, Connor. I'm sorry. Let's just keep going here. <laughs> See, when anybody mentions poltergeists, obviously sort of being perverted, I'm always taken back to the behavior of the invisible man in Alan Moore's The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Oh, okay. I, I would not be that poltergeist. Yes. Well, he gets his comeuppance in the end, doesn't he? He does. Uh, and I'm not sure I like that either. So yeah. <laughs> check yeah. it out, folks. Yeah. That will bring tears to your eyes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I warned you off Steve Stred's stuff earlier. If you don't have a strong stomach, same for the fate of the invisible man. Yes. Story number four. When I was 16, my best friend decided that he would introduce me to a lovely lady named Mary Jane. The first time he got me high, he invited me over to his place when his parents were gone. Just to give you a little idea of the place, we live in rural Manitoba, where there's not too much between towns other than trees, fields and the occasional valley. My friend lived on a farm and his nearest neighbour was down the road about a mile away, so it was a good party place. It was just me, my best friend, his sister and her friend. When I got there, I said a quick hello to his sister and her friend and then we were off to the barn to smoke. Before I knew it, I was laughing and we decided that the kitchen was a much more appealing place to be. After we got inside and into the fridge, we were sitting down in his living room. I was on the couch beside the doorway to the hallway where his and his sister's bedrooms were and he was sitting on a chair directly across from me facing the doorway. His sister and her friend were having drinks in the kitchen which was on the other side of the living room from the hallway. My friend and I were just sitting there enjoying everything from the fridge when, all of a sudden from the hallway, I heard a little girl say, Hello? It was more of a question, like if you aren't sure anyone's home. When I heard that, I stopped mid-chomp and looked at my friend to see him staring back with a spooked look on his face. I asked him if he had heard that too, and he had. That's when we both kind of started to freak out. We quickly asked his sister and her friend if they'd heard anything, but they were too busy ignoring our high asses and definitely <laughs> wasn't them because they were mid-conversation and didn't sound like kids. One thing that came to mind after listening to you guys was that maybe sometimes these things are just time slips and we were making so much noise that that little girl in another timeline heard us by accident. Who knows? But I thought that was a cool idea. I mean, who hasn't smoked themselves into another timeline? <laughs> In fact, this morning I decided to go treat myself to breakfast uh, downtown. And I, I've got two places, three places I kind of circulate between for breakfast. There's one close to me, which I prefer, uh, but sometimes I, I want the walk, so I'll go downtown. But anyways, I was sitting in the one downtown and I texted my friend. I said, you know, it just occurred to me, this place is basically like the nexus point for all the different shittier timeline versions of me. Because everyone around me, I'm like, yeah, that could pretty much be me. But, you know, the sadder 10 years later or the sad, you know, female version of me, we're all just kind of sitting in there, like some kind of weird restaurant at the edge of forever, just <laughs> mutely eating our, eating our greasy diner food and trying not to look in each other's eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah when you're considering should i order spam and mayonnaise in the general public or just eat it at 1am out of a fridge at home? <laughs> yeah. the spam should be eaten either on like as part of spam masubi or crying these are the two ways you eat spam <laughs> the end. i gotta say connor i'm i'm jealous of the fact you guys had a smoke shed because I didn't start smoking anything. Um, and thankfully I never really took up cigarette smoking. You know, my ever, everyone in my family smokes cigarettes. Everyone. I think there are dogs that some of my aunts have, which smoke, <laughs> you know, two or three packs a day. 
but I never, I never really picked up that particular habit. I smoked a little bit in Morocco. You know, I actually, I smoked quite heavily in Morocco, but once we, once I was no longer under the, the stress of that, I, I, I actually remember taking a drag off a cigarette on the boat of the deck of the ship as we were leaving. And all of a sudden I actually, it was like, I tasted it for the first time and I went, fuck this. I pitched it overboard. <laughs> but, um, a friend introduced me to, uh, uh, vaporizers for cannabis. And this is a drug heavy episode, folks. I, I'm sorry. You just kind of have to deal with it. But, um, I don't, I don't super like being high. You know, one, I'm a control freak and two, I just got too much shit to do, but I've, I've been buying CBD cartridges. So I get a little, just a relaxation of it. But the thing is, I'm so used to just smoking it to just pulling on it. Now I forget, I can't do it in public places. So I'll be, cause I'll be sitting in my, on my couch and I'll just pull it out and take a puff and it's fine. Cause it's vapor. The smell goes really quickly. So today I was sitting in the sad diner at the edge of forever and I just thought, well, Jesus Christ, I'm going to have a smoke. And I realized, no, no, you can't just do that. It's, 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 this is like taking your pants off somewhere cause you're comfortable store. You just can't. <laughs> so I, I, I'm deeply jealous of your smoke shed, Connor. What do you, what do you guys have? What, what's, what's left in England to go hide and smoke subtly? Cause it's, it's still very illegal over there. Uh, what Mary Jane, if someone were to do such a thing, which I know you would never lower yourself to that level, but <laughs> hypothetically speaking, the street. Oh, very bold. Okay. No, it's, it's, it's really good. You can always tell when people are cropping around here cause you can just stink it. Oh really? Yeah. People are always lighting blips up everywhere around here. Oh, so they just don't care anymore. Nah, nah. It's, it's kind of tolerated even though it's illegal. I mean, you can't sort of sit in a beer garden. I mean, though, there are certain pubs, shall we say, that turn a blind eye to oh, really? uh, people who have a crafty warm if it's quiet outside late at night. Um, oh, interesting. Okay. But a lot of people these days just walk about with them on the, on the go in the street. You, you, you can, especially where I live here in Sheffield, there are certain parts where people just walk past you with one on the blown. Wow. I mean, when I got together with Nick, she worked for the police. I mean, this is 15 years ago now, but when she came to Canada, or sorry, her and I have been, we've been together for 16 years. So 15 years ago when she came to Canada for the first time, or to live, I remember we were at a, I remember being at a concert, might've been Rob Zombie. And all of a sudden she started sniffing and she went, cannabis, you know, <laughs> like it was the name of her arch nemesis. And she thought he died in the Reichenbach fall, but he had come back. <laughs> Yeah, there were some gigs that <laughs> here in the UK that if you didn't have any, they'd usually probably just give you some anyway to smoke. It. <laughs> they feel bad for you. Especially in Manchester. I remember <laughs> being at a gig in Belfast and it was, uh, it was, do you know the band Down? I am aware of them, yes. Yeah, so the, the lead singer from Down is Phil from formerly of Pantera. Mm. And he was so drunk. This was 2008. I think he's cleaned himself up a little bit now, but- he was so drunk on stage, he could barely perform. He was drinking bottles of wine all night. And someone in the crowd had cannabis and he could smell it. And he kept saying into the microphone in that inimitable voice of his, you know, give me something to smoke. And the Irish absolutely refused to give him shit. They would <laughs> not give him an ounce, a speck of their cannabis. It just was not happening. And he just got real, real sad. No one would share their weed. Like, no. Get it yourself, you <laughs> bastard. <laughs> yeah, so it's um, 
All right, we're back from a massive edit. <laughs> that one's for you, patrons. If you want to hear us bitch about Death on the Nile and the Batman, that's where you go. <laughs> Patreon.com slash ghost story, guys. <laughs> but praise fresh. Which I cannot wait to see. This is story five from Connor. Okay, so this isn't really a story, but more of me hoping to get your thoughts on this. This still happens every now and then, but it happened a lot back in high school. I would be at a party and after falling asleep back home, I'd doze off for a couple of hours. When I would wake up, I'd feel like I was still at the party. I was in my bed with only my shorts on, but there were people there and I could hear them talking. It was like my body was in my house, but my mind was still at the party, yet I knew I was laying in bed. It was like my mind was split. Like one half of my brain was at the party, the other half was in bed. When I would close my eyes, I'd be there. And when I would open them, I'd be back in my bed, yet I was aware I was at both. I really don't know what to think of it, and I've been very curious about what you guys might think. Um, so we're we're a little bit behind, so I'm, I'm going to be uh, quicker on this than I ordinarily would. But uh, basically, Connor, I think one of two things is happening. One, um, or th- three things. There's a, a phenomenon in remote viewing known as bilocation, where basically you're, you're you're viewing a place and you start to have the sensations of that place, while also having the sensation of the the environment from where you're projecting. So that, that is a thing that, that can happen with remote viewers. Cause again, remote viewing is, it's not a case of if it works, it's a case of how. So yeah, by location that is possible. Um, also I, I'd be curious to know if the party's still actually going after you've gone home and go to bed. Cause I kind of just wonder sometimes when I used to work at the library, when I was in high school, that was my first job. Exciting. I know. Um, but I would shelf books for hours. And then I would go home and I'd be hanging out at my house, say playing games or whatever. And I would be, I would be on the computer playing a video game. I would have cause ADHD, which I did not understand at the time. I would also have like, you know, a television show going in the corner of the room, but I would be certain looking, I'd be looking at the, te- at the, my screen, but I would be certain that if I were to look in my peripheral vision, I was still in the library. And I just sometimes think if, think if we're really, cause back then it was my first job. I was trying really hard not to fuck up. And I kind of wonder if we're really intensely in a place when we're younger, we just, we kind of, in a way we, we sort of keep those, keep that awareness around us. You know, like another example is, um, one night when I was working at the dispensary, we had this crazy windstorm and the wind kept blowing open the door. And so the, the bell would ding. So we'd go out front and it's just, it's nothing. It's just the wind. And this happened for hours. <laughs> and at the end of the night, it literally felt like I couldn't shake the feeling that I was still at work and the door was going. So I think sometimes, cause again, odds are hours after you've gone to bed, like you don't strike me as the kind of guy who, who dips out of the party while it's still in full swing. So kind of assuming the party's probably over by that point. And I'm just wondering if it's that sense of like that youthful sense of it's such an overwhelming sensory experience. You kind of just hang on to it, you know? That would be my thought. Do you have any quick thoughts before we move on? Yeah, I think sometimes if you've had a great time, you can take that with you, whether you realize it or not. And if you begin to relax, then you can find yourself returning to it. I've had that experience before. Oh, um, there you go. Primarily, probably through the refreshment side imbibed of a variety. Uh, that does help. Yes, I believe that that makes a, uh, makes a difference. Absolutely. And as I always have rules for parties, don't be the first to arrive and never be the last to leave. Yes, that's right. Great rules for life. Unless it's your party. All right. So we're going to move on now to Connor's final story. And then we're going to talk a little bit about that because this is another thing, as I mentioned before, that connects back to other stories we've had on the show. Where I live, the town is right on top of a valley through which the Assamboyne River runs. 
At the time of this story, I was probably 10 years old and was hiking with my mum's meditation group. Being an adventurous 10-year-old, I thought it would be a good idea to just run up ahead of them and explore. A quick note, I hunt in that valley, and the older I got, the more I was able to hunt by myself, and my dad didn't care as long as I told him which area I was in. Place we went for a hike is a good hunting spot. Deer use the trails all the time, so I would walk them often as I got older. Anyways, when I went up ahead of the crew, I remember seeing a creek, so I thought I'd go and throw some rocks. I followed the creek down to a huge, and I mean huge, field of sunflowers. I remember it being quiet. It seemed so cool, and I started playing with the flowers, grabbing one and deciding to go back to the group. It felt like no more than ten minutes had passed, so I went back to the creek and followed it right to where I came from. When I stepped back onto the trail, I could hear everything around me again. I started to hear people yelling my name, so I nonchalantly walked towards the voices, and that's when my mum's friend screamed out that she had found me. She ran up to me and wrapped me in a hug. Then when my mum got there, bawling her eyes out, I asked her what was wrong and she asked me where I went and why I was gone so long. I was really confused, especially when my dad came out of nowhere. I guess I'd been gone for about three hours and my mum had even called my dad to help look because he knew the area better. I told him I'd been at the sunflower field and he looked confused. He said the only sunflower field around here was the one in front of our house in the valley. After that, everyone decided it was a good time to stop hiking and we left, never really talking about it. I've tried so many times to find that creek and that field, but I have walked that trail more than a hundred times by now and there is no creek or even a field big enough where sunflowers might once have been. Nothing but thick bush surrounds that area and as a ten-year-old it should not have been that easy for me to run through it in shorts without being scratched, but I was clean. It makes me wonder, if I hadn't decided to go back at that moment and instead kept playing, would I have actually come back at all? And man, you know, that is such a great question. Like stories like this are one of the things that keep me coming back. I'm fascinated by ghosts. I'm fascinated by things like that. But the idea, I've always been obsessed, obsessed with the notion of other worlds similar to, but alongside ours. Hmm. And that is like a one example. And honestly, I don't know. I mean, I have a theory that it's quite possible you would not have come back. And I think it is possible that there are people who have not come back. You know, I, I have this mental image and I've talked about it on the show a long time ago of reality as almost like a, like a barber's pole almost with lenses all around it and the lens, it twists and the lenses all move in sync and each series of lenses, like imagine shining a laser through a series of lenses, mm -hmm. that laser through that series of lenses is your experience of life. But sometimes I think if we accept this as a, a thing that the lenses misalign. And I think if you pass through one of those misaligned lenses, before it has a, ch and you don't come back, you don't correct before it corrects, then I think you get lost. And this really struck a chord with me, obviously. And it really, um, reminded me of something. And, and there were, there were two things or three things that I want to talk about. One is my uncle 
a couple of years ago, he had heart surgery and he died on the table very briefly, but he did. Mm. And he described in that brief amount of time, he described standing in a field surrounded by the softest flowers he had ever felt. And there were people there, but he couldn't see their faces. And then he was back and he was only dead for about five seconds, maybe 10 seconds, but this is what he saw. And, and the fact, again, that you saw this field full of flowers, I think, well, you know, is it a coincidence? Mm. Then something twigged in my memory. We have heard stories like this on the show before, and, and I've got two here and I'm not, I'm, because we're a little bit pressed for time, I'm not going to read them in their entirety, but the first comes from our listener, Grace, and we have shared these on the show before, but I believe at least two years ago. So Grace says that her father, her grandfather lived in a big house in a wooded area. It was at the end of a winding street and it was surrounded by trees. It was very beautiful. And her and her brothers would venture out each time they visited. They would hike to the bottom of a ravine, which the house bordered on. They would explore along a small creek. She said it was a really wonderful place. But one time they were there with their cousins who were a few years older than them. And they came across a surprisingly large oak tree at the bottom of the ravine. She said it was towards the point in fall when most of the trees have changed color, but this one was still green. And she remembers looking back to her older cousins who were playing about 15 yards away. And then her and her younger brothers walked past the tree. And after a very short walk, they were suddenly in an open field of lilac flowers. And now she said these flowers extended as far as the eye could see. And bear in mind, they were in the bottom of a steep ravine. So there should not have been open plain. And she said she can still remember the field of lilacs today. It was beautiful. She said, we ran and played for what felt like hours until we were all tired and laying down in purple flowers. I remember thinking how odd it was that we had never found the field before, but being about seven years old, I just shrugged it away. I told my brothers we should probably go get our cousins, so we turned back towards the trees to walk to them. We were so excited to show them the field. She says they passed a large oak tree again and ran to tell them about the amazing field of lilacs. Her cousin said, what are you talking about? I just looked over to check on you guys a few minutes ago and you were right over there playing in the creek. I grabbed him by the hand and started pulling him over to where we saw the tree. We walked and walked until she realized it was not there anymore. And that's it. She has never again found that feel of lilacs. They've looked at maps. There is nothing to suggest that those lilacs were ever there. But it raises the question of if they weren't there, where the fuck did they go? And now you might say, okay, that's kids. Shit happens, right? Kids remember things weird. But then we have this message from Joe. And Joe, this happened to Joe when Joe was a teenager. She used to ride in uh, the empty areas in her neighborhood where she used to ride her horse. And they were basically, uh, it was at the edge of the Mojave Desert. There were buttes throughout the area. It was actually, uh, she was, as I recall, she said it was a very popular area. A lot of people rode through it. They shot a lot of movies there. Uh, they shot Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. People would film extreme motors, motocross. Uh, they shot scenes from Firefly there, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. They even filmed scenes from U2's Joshua Tree video there. So mm. yeah, so like this is a well-known, a well-traveled part of the desert. But one day when she was 15, she was horseback riding. She came across a path she didn't recognize and there was a dry riverbed. So the sand in the river, in the riverbed was different than the desert dirt around it. And apparently it's not uncommon for that riverbed to be sunken into the ground the way it would be if it still held running water. But she said this riverbed was not where she was used to seeing it. So she followed it because it was, it, it didn't make, it didn't click with, it didn't make sense with her memory of the area. 
and she said for some reason on this day, instead of a fairly straight path, it seemed to curve, winding like a snake through an area that was suddenly denser in trees and brush than she remembered. The sides of the riverbed were slowly increasing in height. The width of the riverbed started at around 10 feet across, but as the sides grew taller, it also grew narrower, until she could touch either side with her outstretched hands. And even on horseback, it was taller than her head, so she couldn't see out of it. And she said the narrower the passage got, the more spooked the horse got. But she was just overcome with curiosity. She had to keep going. And the winding curves were getting so close that she couldn't see more than a dozen feet ahead of her. She says, and all of a sudden we went around one corner and reached a dead end. It looked like what I imagined a dry waterfall would look like, but I'd never seen it before. The sand there was almost a glistening white, a stark contrast to the dull khaki brown of everything else in the desert. And I had the distinct sensation of being watched. I tried to look around me, but aside from the door walls, but aside from the walls, the only place to look was up. I couldn't see anything, but I had a desperate need to get out of there right that second. The space was small enough my horse had to walk backwards before we could turn around, but as soon as we did, I ran home. Now, Joe said she went looking for that spot again and could never find it. And she finishes by saying, it is just impossible to lose something that big in an area that small. I wonder what might have happened if I hadn't run into a dead end. And this seems to be like such a common thing. People come out of there wondering, what if I didn't leave? And see above for my, my answer to that. But what are your thoughts, Paul? As, as you touched on, oh, well, kids make all kinds of crap up, but I find it incredible. Why would, you know, like Connor says there, why would he imagine a, a field of sunflowers? I mean, that's a strange thing to, to mention anyway, because when I heard that, I was thought, well, that's a bit peculiar anyway. Yeah. Even in a normal concept, I think most people couldn't even imagine what a, a field of never ending sunflowers would look like because they're obviously a very, imposing plant at the best of times you know they can grow extremely tall yeah so for a child to encounter something like that it would be both striking and mesmerizing i would imagine so there are new there are notable incidents of people stumbling across strange places there are stories from scotland of people mountaineering who encounter cottages that they seek shelter in and then when they try to return there, there, there is there is either no cottage or it's a wreck. Interesting. So what? Where where did they go? Why did they see it? Why did they think it was something else? Because regardless of how tired or sleepy you are, I refuse to believe that anybody could be, especially if there's more than one person. Because one story I think of in Scotland, there was two gentlemen who sought sought shelter in a in a cottage, and both were of the impression that it was perfectly reasonable and, and in great order. And yet when they returned, it was a shadow. There was nothing there. It was just a few walls and all the roof had come off and it was a, it was a dump. So and that's why, just, why do these people see these things? Where do they go? That's it. it, it Cause it, I don't care what anyone says. I refuse to agree with anyone with, with the notion that, oh, you were just mistaken. You, oh, cause you're not going to imagine no matter how desperate you are, you're not going to imagine roofs, uh, like a roof, walls and a roof. You're just not. Sometimes I think people took Bugs Bunny cartoons too literally mm. because they, they think that when you're hungry, people really do look like turkey legs. Don't they? I mean, everything looks like a turkey leg to me. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm on a lot of watch lists, Paul, is the thing. <laughs> but 
because it doesn't, yeah, there's nothing makes sense. Like it's this idea that we can trust your perception, you know, reasonably enough to a certain point, enough to convict people and put people to death because of it. But the second the perception doesn't fit the established wisdom, all of a sudden it doesn't count. And, and mm. that doesn't, doesn't make any logical sense to me. Yeah. Well, that's always applied to all kinds of strange phenomena, be it a UFO sighting or a ghostly encounter or a time True. slip. You know, the amount of people that if you listen to all the skeptics, and that's not to say that you can't and shouldn't look at things with a skeptical slant, because you should always, you know, sit astride the parallels of, of belief and dogma, regardless of which side of the coin you come at it from, that everybody that experiences something is having some kind of epileptic seizure or some weird kind of brain freeze or we all have sleep paralysis when we see things. That, to me, is as nonsensical as people sometimes claiming to have conversations with aliens from Venus telling them they've got to stop using nuclear weapons to save the Earth. You know, if, yeah. if we are to believe that kind of thing, that most everybody that's ever seen anything odd has had some kind of brain malfunction. How does anybody get through a day if that's what's happening? Because, <laughs> you know, yeah. there must be thousands of people around the world in a state of confusion that they could kill people. And yet nobody ever seems to get hurt in these incidents as well. So if you are having these incredible hallucinations or, or brain induced visual comas or whatever you want to pin them as, then why aren't more people having them then? Because clearly if that's the excuse, then they're, they're extremely common. I don't know anybody that's had that. No, that's it. It's frustrating because it stops us from, from advancing forward. Mm, absolutely. And they would always, the other aspect of this is that people will always say, oh, well, it's cultural impressions. Oh, people, are, people are thinking that people, have see, people who see the fields of flowers have just been watching The Wizard of Oz recently. Well, if they are, why aren't they talking about it being in a field of poppies then? Yeah. Yeah. In a fucking tin man. Like, that's that's so that's beyond lazy. That annoys the shit out of me. And the other thing about this is these are fairly normal situations. They're just not where they should be. You know, we're not as we were talking about people seeing giant flying dinosaurs and things earlier. When people explain these situations of finding fields of pop uh, fields of lilacs or fields of sunflowers, these are normal situations. These are things that happen. Yeah. You know, it's not like they're seeing a shark flying through the sky. So uh, uh, if we are to believe that these are brain-induced hallucinations, then we know hallucinations for some people can be extremely traumatizing and terrifying, and they see awful things. Seeing a field of beautiful sunflowers or beautiful lilacs is not a traumatic experience. It's a beautiful experience. It's a calming experience. It makes you, I would imagine there would be some kind of rapturous response to that. You would feel wonderful, I would imagine. The hallucination do explanation doesn't even come close to explaining how multiple people can see this. Mm. It's yeah, no, uh, Connor, thank you so much for sharing all those with us. A lot of food for thought there. And, um, yeah, we really appreciate you, you, uh, sending those in. That's going to do it for this round of listener stories. But folks, if you want to send anything in uh, comment, question, story, ghost story guys at gmail.com. Uh, also the ghost line, but we will talk about that after the break.
Hey there, listeners. Before you reach for that skip 15 seconds ahead button, I promise you this isn't an ad. We wanted to take a minute to talk to you about mental health. On this show, I've always tried to be as honest and open as possible about my struggles with depression and anxiety, because even though we've come a long way towards acknowledging the very real damage these things can do, there is still way too much lingering stigma about reaching out for help. And when you start to feel like there's no help, it's easy to start feeling like there's no hope. But Paul has joined me today to remind you there is always hope and there's always help. We're not going to try and talk you out of self-harming right now, because we know that's not how it works. Instead, what we wanted to do was tell you something now and hope that should things get bad, you'll remember it and make a phone call or send a text message before you make any permanent decisions. As someone who knows all too well just how important mental health can be, it's never too late to reach out. In Canada, the number to call is 133-456-4566. In the USA, the number to call is 1-800-273-8255. In the UK, the number to call is 116-123 or text SHOUT, that's S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. In Australia, the number to call is 131114. However bad shit seems, it will pass. And no matter what your brain might be telling you at any given moment, and believe me when I say I know this intimately, there are people who love you and people who care deeply about how you treat yourself. Should a time come when you find yourself despairing, please know that we've both been where you are and there is a way back to the world. Take care. Welcome back. Thanks, as always, to Luke, Anthony, Sarah, and Joseph, and everyone else who's part of the Ghost Story Guys team. Don't forget to check out Luke's short-form folklore podcast, Luke Lore. That's typically around 15 minutes, and it's a deep dive into the folklore topic of Luke's choosing. This episode that just was released is O Ostara, and if you want to hear Luke Halloweenify Easter, that's the place to go. You can, so again, you can find that everywhere fine podcasts live or at lukelore.com. We've actually got that up with episode transcripts now, and we're working on getting all those online. So if you want, you want the folklore information, but damn it, you don't have time to listen to a 15 minute podcast, go to lukelore.com and you can find all that information there in transcript form. And of course, the latest member of the Ghost Story Guys family in search of ghosts, Dr. Joseph Camo's YouTube show. You'll find a link to that in the show notes. And that is a, uh, a level headed look at discussing various haunted phenomena. And of course, Joseph and I also now host the, uh, uh currently monthly, but eventually bi-weekly YouTube live stream weird together. And the next one's coming up on April 12th. That'll be seven o'clock Pacific time. And we are talking about the brand new horror film, the scary of 61st, the surprisingly horny horror film, the scary of 61st. I, I picked the movie. I did not know it was going to be that horny. And I watched it first and I sent a message and said, Hey, uh, yeah, you're going to want to watch this with headphones when your kids are asleep and, you know, tell your wife that if she comes in the room and it looks like you're watching pornography, it's for work. So <laughs> you can watch the previous live stream on the ghost story guys, YouTube channel. And again, that'll be on April 12th. Thanks also to my friend and co-host, the paranormal Johnny Carson host of mysteries and monsters, Paul Bestel, who is now in his third year of mysteries and monsters. Congratulations, <laughs> my friend. Thank you. Yes. Strange, isn't it? Not at all. 
I am not surprised. Now that you're, now that I've seen what you're capable of these last three years, I'm like, nope, this, this is only going up. Yeah. It's been a, it's been a ride. Yeah. Um, you know, from, from just deciding to do something just to save my own mental health and sanity to, to get where it is, is, is remarkable. Really. It's crazy. It's fucking great is what it is. <laughs> so tell us what's coming up on Eminem, Paul. As this episode hits, I will be diving into the experience of phenomenon with Canadian researcher and hypnotherapist, Leslie Mitchell-Clark, talking regressional therapies, experiences, some of the creatures that people have mentioned encountering during their abductions, touching strangely on the Secret Space Force project, which I was not expecting, Oh, um, okay. as well as dancing around with a couple of cryptids. Uh, and looking into the situations and, and talking about a couple of cases, including one about um, family members being taken at the same time and being aware of each other when it happens. Oh, interesting. And then I've got the wonderful Scottish paranormal researcher, Malcolm Robinson, joining me for my 175th episode, where we dive into the infamous Sorky poltergeist, which for many people, is a more compelling case than Enfield. Um, and I certainly think deserves to be held up in that company, definitely. Some would say it's better witnessed and wasn't just confined to the victim's home. It actually came to school and was witnessed by teachers and other pupils. Oh, wow. Um, and we also talk about a, a very strange case that's currently happening in Ireland that's involving all kinds of weird things. And oh. then uh, uh, a very famous UFO missing time abduction case from Scotland in the early 90s, which has once again seen Malcolm revisit it as he is uh, now retired and able to sort of spend a lot more time on that. So they're, they're the most upcoming episodes and uh, more great guests coming up. Brilliant. Well, where can everyone find you online? You can find me by searching for Mysteries and Monsters, where all good podcasts all good podcasts live. You can also find me on all social media by looking for Mysteries and Monsters, and we're on all the major platforms. Perfect. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Largely the Truth, and my podcast, Largely the Truth with Brennan Store, is available everywhere you get your shows. You can also head to largelythetruth.com. As I mentioned at the top of the show, my most recent guests are Canadian horror novelist Steve Stred and Andrew Piper. And there's some fascinating shit in that conversation. I cannot recommend it enough. And uh, hopefully my next episode is scheduled to be, and the interview has not taken place yet, but it is scheduled, is scheduled to be with the Adams family. Not that one. These are a family <laughs> of filmmakers whose most recent film, Hellbender, hit Shudder about a month ago, maybe two months ago, and has been garnering insane reviews. And it is a very, very good movie. Uh, they were just profiled in the New York times not that long ago. So I don't know what the fuck they're doing on my show, but, uh, that, that is the plan. So that'll be out two weeks from now. But for now, I do recommend checking out the interviews with Steve Stred and Andrew Piper because you will learn stuff. It is, uh, it goes to a pretty crazy place. It's the only sh one of my shows I've ever put a, uh, uh, content warning on because some of the things Steve found in the course of investigating that cult were truly shocking. So again, that's largely the truth with Brendan Storr. Everywhere, find podcasts live. Like we said at the start, if you want to join the team, help support the show. Listening is wonderful, but financial support is always welcome. 
And if you join the Patreon at $5 a month or more, you get access to all kinds of bonus material, weekly episodes of Book of the Dead, host adventures, monthly episodes of the Sunken Library, me and Paul, all kinds of cool stuff, live streams, and that's all at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguides. That's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguides. If you are a supporter at $20 a month and above, well, folks, that makes you part of Ghost Force. <laughs> Patrons at the $20 level and above get thanked every second show here in this segment. Because you're part of Ghost Force, and by God, I don't know what we'd do without you. No, thank you. This time around, the members of Ghost Force are... Atham Saragon. Amanda Strong. April Bowers. Beth Hanson. Cheryl Baker. Dan Garrity. Dylan Sedlicek. We got that wrong last time, Dylan. This time we fixed it. Hannah Brown. Hannah Siemens. Jade Moores. Jason R. Slaughter. Jeanette Patterson. Jennifer Mullen. Johannes Escantildeo. Joseph Como. Julia Lugubrius. Just Julie. Jenna Blackwilder. Kimberly Hansen. Mara Noriega. Mark Semler. Mary Rose WW. Peter Guns 08.5. Rebecca Brink. Ronda Sheen. Richard Easeby. Whitney Pussy. You are the few. You are the spooky. You are Ghost Force. Ghost Force. For real, guys. Thank you so, 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 so much. <laughs> One, we love doing that segment. Two, we deeply appreciate your support, both uh, both financially and uh, by your presence in the boards. You know, and you guys uh, comment on posts. Uh, that's fun. It's a great little com- community we have. I'm so proud to be part of it. And if you want to join the team, you want to join that community, head on over to patreon.com slash ghost three guys. We'll be happy to meet you, happy to hang out and shoot the shit. Uh, I'm going to be starting up the monthly live streams again for patrons, and I'm looking forward to spending time with you guys. So, patreon.com slash ghost story guys. All right. Like we said before, if you want to get in touch, ghoststoryguys at gmail.com is the best way to get in touch. But you can also find us on all the major social media platforms. We're on Facebook and Twitter as Ghost Story Guys. We're on Instagram as The Ghost Story Guys. And we're on Reddit as r slash ghost story guys podcast. And of course, if you don't want to type, you can always call the ghost line. There's something strange in your neighborhood. We're gonna call Ghost Line. Call one triple eight five eight eight six nine two Thanks to Amber Pease for her ghost line jingle. That number is one triple eight. 588-6920. You can leave your story or comment as one or a series of voicemails. And if for whatever reason you are not able to call the ghost line, if you're outside of North America, for example, you can always send us a voice message using the vo- recording app on your phone, attach it to an email, and just include it as a subject heading ghost line. Finally, our episode of the TV trivia podcast has dropped. Mm. You and I rocked some uh, Marvel trivia. We rocked it hard. Yes. I love Captain America. Uh, that may have come up once or twice on the recording. <laughs> <laughs> He's my hero. He really is. Yes. 
And so, yeah, you can find that at, uh, by searching for TV trivia pod, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, it, it was a ton of fun, really. I think yes. it's about a half hour show. Brian was a lot of fun. We <laughs> had fun with, with the questions. We know, uh, Paul knows everything there is to know about <laughs> the Avengers. I think actually the, the best parts of the show were when we kind of wrested control of it away from him and just started bantering about, you know, <laughs> like the trivia, you know, about the Avengers or the problems I have with, uh, Iron Man's suit in Iron Man 2. Which is quite funny, obviously, having found a special edition of Endgame today whilst I was out. Yeah, that was great. World. Mm, lucky bastard. All right. So, yeah. So, if you want to listen to TV Trivia Pod with us, look it up. It's a ton of fun. There's mm-hmm. also a bonus episode for his patrons. I think an additional 20 minutes. If you want to pick up some Ghost Story Guys merch, head on over to our website, ghoststoryguys.com. Follow the links to our Redbubble and Public stores. Uh, we have a new design coming up pretty quick. We're just finalizing it with the designers. Very excited to show you guys. It's, it's pretty cool. And so you'll be able to find that exclusively on TeePublic. That is, uh, that is exclusive to them. We'll post that up on our socials when it finally happens. Also, tell your friends about the show. We're really hoping to grow our audience this year. And honestly, word of mouth is the best way for that to happen. So if you like what we do, make sure to tell your friends, force them to download the show, uh, threaten them if you must. No, I'm kidding. Don't actually do that. <laughs> <laughs> and but if yeah. you also... Uh, someone I've, I've had a few messages from people who also remember battle of the planets. Oh yeah. Yeah. I saw That's fantastic. I love that we can all connect over our shared love of strange half remembered TV shows from other times or songs or movies. Yes. Someone's just tagged me in a post saying that the Russos are apparently optioning it. Oh, that's dangerous. Mm-hmm. That means it might be wildly good. I'm looking forward to your, uh, movie shelves sagging that much more. Yeah, because that's, I, I really need another genre to get into. <laughs> right now, Julie's like, she's, her spidey sense is going off. She's like, something's happening. <laughs> yes, it's when, when the Amazon envelopes are littered around the house. What have you been buying now? Porn. Yeah, I'd be better off saying that, to be fair. <laughs> not another bloody book on Ghost. Bigfoot's not real. Then I go I'm, surprised you, I'm surprised you guys are still together. That's, <laughs> those are fighting words. Yeah. She'll not be laughing if he jumps through a window. <laughs> like the beast of Boggy Creek. Oh boy. There's a, there's a glimpse inside the head of Paul Bestel right there, folks. <laughs> well, it is, it is one of those things that um, somebody once said, why do you always, when you sleep in bed, why do you always sleep on the far side? And I quite normally said, well, it, you know, if a werewolf jumps through the window, <laughs> they're not going to get me first. Just makes and sense to me. I think they me. thought I was joking. <laughs> Our theme song, Radio, Into the Darkness We Go, is composed and performed by Peter Kursov of Pizanta Music. Find more from him at nightharvestrecordings.com or by searching for Pizanta Music wherever you stream your tunes. Our story's theme is The Future Belongs to Them Now by Hexagram. Find more from them by searching for Hexagram wherever you get your music. Remember, that's Hexagram with two X's, not three. I guess that's going to do it. Well, we'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until then, Into the Darkness We Go.
<laughs> yes, that's how I feel about it too. There's one thing I hate losing an hour in my morning. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> For me, it's my in my evening because I'm like watching a movie and all of a sudden it's three. Fuck. <laughs> Congratulations on three years, by the way. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Mental. Who knew we'd make it this far? <laughs> Not I. Somebody bought me a, my first ever DAB radio. Oh, 15 years ago, Christmas. And one of the channels I found was Classic Rock. Right. So I just had it on Christmas holidays. We were off work and they just started playing this song and it was fucking mental. <laughs> like a rainbow rising through the sky. He lives in a tower. He's a killer wizard. And I thought, what the fucking hell is this? It's mental. And it was rainbow rising. Oh, man. Or unreal. Eight, eight and a half minutes. Amazing. You can't help well, but be inspired listening to that. I mean, that and Holy Diver, man. Holy Diver. Holy is- Diver! Because <laughs> I met Richie Blackmore by accident because I, I, I had he was uh, one of my school friend's dad's brother. No. And he turned up for tea, like chips and egg, <laughs> dressed as a fucking wizard. <laughs> in, a, in a in a chauffeur driven Bentley, Jesus Christ! And uh, Graham Bonnet recalls infamous nineteen eighty two show with Michael Schenker Group when he exposed himself to crowd. You don't come to the home of British rock and do that. That's right. We're about cock rock, but not rock <laughs> and cock. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's something that's probably you know I'm sure I'm sure by nineteen eighty two had seen far worse in Sheffield at gigs than that. Well, I, I was thinking that yeah, I mean now that's I don't even know if that would register. Like, wasn't there the one? There was a show recently where the singer pissed on a guy's face. <laughs> oh, who was it now? Singer Brass Against the lead singer of the rock group Brass Against apologized for peeing on a fan's face during a recent performance. <laughs> A video shared on social media showed Sophia Eurista pulling down her pants and peeing on a fan who lay on the stage at the Rockville Metal Festival last week in Daytona Beach, Florida. Florida, man. It just does, <laughs> it just does things to your mind, doesn't it? Watch yeah. you. You're either Florida man or it's just Florida, comma, man. Yeah. <laughs> the show we're going to be playing a promo for in this episode, they're a new show and their, their thing is they watch a horror movie. They talk about it, but they also write and sing original songs based on that film. <laughs> it's called the Go- the Ghost Gig Podcast. Cool. Yeah, I, I admire their their chutzpah. I think they're British too. Actually, no one's perfect. Yeah, jolly good. <laughs> I say. What? What? I'm gonna say kibbles and beans. That doesn't make any fucking sense. Okay, let's just do this. <laughs> Fuck! I should let you take this one. <laughs> That's why I held back. You prick. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> she'll do it in the morning. She'll, when Nick goes to work, she's lonely. So she'll just wander around till I wake up or wake me up by going. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Disappointing. You're a- All right. The other day with Nick and some friends. What a piece of shit. I didn't even know that was out till a bus went past me today. I'd rather have been hit by that bus and see the movie, so. 